You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Psalm 146, if you don't mind, and while you're uh, waking up and uh, focusing and uh, getting over all that you've ate and participated in this past week, I hope you had a good time with your family. I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving, um, and no doubt after um, your Thanksgiving meal leading into Friday, Instead of going to a lot of stores, you were online quite a bit, uh, checking out the sales and trying to get in on all the bargains that you can. Let's take a look at Psalm 146. I want to read the entire psalm this morning as we, as we get started. It says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes and a son of man whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Father in heaven, we are deeply grateful this morning for your goodness and your kindness, your grace and your mercy and your love. Father, we don't have enough words in the English language to be able to tell you just how awesome and great you are. Father, it seems as though we fall way short. We see your beauty in creation. We see the beauty of who you are, of of your character in your word. Father, when we cast our eyes upon Jesus and we think of all that he accomplished and all that he did, uh, Father, we're speechless. And Father, when we try to worship you, we, we fall short. One day we will stand in your presence. One day we'll be able to return the praise and worship that you deserve. But in this place and where we live now, Father, it seems like we're always falling short and missing that mark of true and pure worship that you deserve. Father, I pray that this morning our hearts and our minds would be focused. Uh, There's a lot going on in our families, a lot going on in our world, a lot going on in in our communities. And, And Father, a lot of that work that is happening is very, very good work. It's work that honors you. It's work that helps those who are in need. But, Father, what is needed this morning is for us to focus, focus our hearts and our minds on that which really matters. So, Father, as we worship you this morning through your word, we pray that you would be exalted. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. I saw a comic strip recently. I don't know where I saw it. It might have been online somewhere. But I saw this comic strip, and it was two turtles talking to one another. And the first turtle says to the second turtle, Quote, sometimes I would like to ask God why he allows poverty, poverty, famine, and injustice when he could do something about it. Uh, the other turtle responds, well, I'm afraid God might, God might ask me the same question one day. The age-old question, 
how does a loving God, powerful God, the one who can speak the worlds into existence, why is it that when we look at our world, we see so much suffering, so much pain, so much heartache, not just over there, not just in some other country, but maybe right in your own home. Why is it that a God who loves unconditionally and a God who has the power to change things, why is it that, that God chooses not to? Why is it that, that God doesn't do more in our world to alleviate the suffering that we see all around us? If he's able and he's loving, then why doesn't he do something? I think I'm, I'm with the turtle on this one, the second one. Because I'm afraid that God's going to ask me the same thing one of these days. As a matter of fact, I'm sure that God is going to ask me that one day. The reason I'm sure of that is that the New Testament tells us very clearly through the writings of Paul that, that one day I'm going to have to stand before Jesus Christ, the one who saved me, the one who redeemed me, the one who gave me tons of resources. And he's going to have a, a conference with me. We call it a come to Jesus moment. This is the literal come to Jesus moment where I'm standing before him. And there's going to be some questions that Jesus has on his mind. Now, he already knows the answers to those questions. One of the things he's going to be intimately concerned about is all the resources he gave me and how I use those as a stewardship, as an offering of worship back to him. Now, he already knows. He already knows the intricate details. He already knows exactly what I've done. And not only that, he knows the reason behind what I've done and why I've done it. In other words, Jesus is going to be very interested to talk about not only what I did, but the motivation behind why I did what I did. You see, the thing about motivation is, is that I can, I can hide that pretty well. My outward works, my outward things that I do in any given week with my family and service to this church, you can see those, but you can't always see the motivation behind it. And that is exactly what Jesus is concerned about. And not only Jesus, but the entire of Scripture with the nation of Israel, with the 12 disciples under Jesus' leadership, the New Testament church, there is this focus on the heart why we do what we do and i think you probably already know this but i'm going to point it out anyway this all goes back to genesis 1 it, it all goes back to genesis chapter 1 where god did something amazing and powerful and beautiful and intricate that in all of the creation that he that he called forth that uh, he called forth light, and he, and he called forth the planets, and he called forth the stars, and he placed the sun and the moon. And, and you know the, the story of creation. Well, in the, near the end of that creation story, we have the pinnacle of God's creation, humanity. And, and in that moment of creation, when he created Adam and then later created Eve from Adam, we have two human beings created in the image of God. Nothing else in creation has that description attached to it. Not the animals, not the universe, only humanity. And, and the vastness of creation, only one created thing has the image of God, bears the image of God, and it's you and I. And as we bear that image, it says in Genesis 1, verses 26 through 27, it's repetitive, where God says, let us create man in our image. And then it says, God created them in his image. And he, and he repeats it, and in his image, God created them. It's almost as though God wants us to know something there. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Does that mean we look like God physically? No. 
What it means is that we have something the rest of creation does not have. It's actually several things. We have the ability to create music that you just heard just a few minutes ago. Not only create it, but to perform it. We have the ability to, to reason. We have an, an intellect that helps us to, to build buildings and, and write books and, and be creative. That's all part of what it means to be created in the image of God because all of those are attributes of God. We have the ability to love and even love sacrificially. Those are all attributes that point back to our Creator. So not only were we created in His image, but we were created to worship Him. So, so bearing His image means that, that we represent the Creator of the universe upon this planet. And as such, we are, we are ambassadors. That we represent the Creator and, and all those faculties that God gave us in that image-bearing responsibility that we have points back to a Creator and that we are designed to worship Him. But you know as well as I do, there's a problem here. That not everybody worships God. Not everybody here today worships God. You're here, but the question is, are you worshiping Him? And, and, and even a deeper question is, why are you here? What's your motivation for being here? I'm finding that the Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, there we find the roots of all of those big questions in life. If God is good and God is powerful, God is loving, then why isn't God doing something? Well, maybe God has done something. Maybe he's done something very profound and very powerful, and that's something that he's done is put humanity on this planet who bear his image, who, who worship him to do the work that he's called us to do. But you know Genesis 3 happened, right? Genesis 3 happens, and we have a serpent in a garden, and we have... Adam and Eve, God's prized creation, disobeying God, and as a result, cast the whole world into chaos. It's from that single event we have cancer, we have diabetes, we have broken marriages, we have broken people. And not only that, that, that our image that we bear, the, the image of God that we bear has been marred, it's been, it's been covered over by, by sin and disobedience that we were born into and then choose to do. So we have a, a, a serious problem. We, we are image bearers of God, but yet... The brokenness of sin and our rebellion and our heritage all the way back to Adam and Eve has marred that image. The psalmist is going to point us to something very, very profound. And it's not right on the surface of this psalm, but when we take it in context with the other psalms around it, we begin to see an image here of what God is expecting his people to do. But what God calls us to do flows out of the place of who we are and our worship of Him. As a matter of fact, what God wants to accomplish in the world to, to be accomplished through His image bearers, there's some things that must come first. As a matter of fact, when we love and we worship God, we become more like Him. I, I've told you the last couple of weeks that whatever you worship, whatever you follow, whatever you put your trust in, whatever you give your time and your talent and your treasure to, you become like it. The more we love God, the more we, the more we study His Word and learn more about it, and the more we sing songs just like we sung, the, the goal and the object is, is that we become more like Him and that we worship Him more. You see, the more you're exposed to a holy God, the more you worship Him, the more you know about Him, the more you want to know about Him, the more you want to follow Him, the more you want to love Him, the more you want to put your faith in Him. The psalmist says that out of that love for God, something else flows out of those image bearers. He's going to reveal that in Psalm 146. 
the words that we use to honor him, the songs that you just sung, it changes us. You see, worship is very core, is repeating back to God what we know God to be. That's what you just did with the songs you just sung. It was repeating back to God the truth of who God is, of his faithfulness, of his love, of his grace, his salvation, his mercy. And as we do that, as we, as we repeat God's words back to him, as we repeat songs back to him, as we see the God of creation in the world around us, and we, we look to God and we worship him, it does something in us, it changes us, and it prepares us to do what God has called us to do. That's why Jesus said that the greatest commandment is this. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what was the next one? Love your neighbor as yourself. There's a hierarchy there. We love God first. We love God most. And out of that love flows love for our husbands and our wives and our kids, our grandkids, our neighbors, the person who checks us out at Walmart. Worship first. Serviced come second. Look at Psalm 146, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. In other words, the psalmist says, and just like some of the other psalms we've seen, this psalm begins with praise the Lord and it ends with praise the Lord. It, it begins with Hallel and it ends with Hallel. So the psalmist is bookending everything that he's going to say in the middle with praise the Lord. And the psalmist says here, that as for him, he will worship the Lord as long as he lives. Look at that phrase, when I, as I have my being. In other words, as long as I have breath in my body, as long as I have life within me, I'm going to spend my time, I'm going to invest my life in something greater than myself, and I'm going to worship God as long as I live. Notice he doesn't say, I'm going to worship the Lord as long as I'm at the temple. He doesn't say that I'm going to worship the Lord as long as it's Passover. I'm going to worship the Lord as long as I'm in Jerusalem. A few weeks ago, we talked about those Psalms of Ascent and how important it was for the people of, of Israel to make that journey to, to Jerusalem. But notice how the psalmist says, it does not matter the place. It does not matter the life situation. It does not matter where I find myself, that I, in my house and in my life, I'm going to serve and I'm going to worship and I'm going to praise the Lord as long as I have breath in my body. It doesn't have to be just on Sunday or Saturday or Monday or Wednesday. What the psalmist is describing here is a lifestyle of worship. It doesn't happen just in a building. I'm, I'm very concerned that over the years, especially in our denomination, the Southern Baptists, we've put so much emphasis on the Sunday morning gathering. We've done so at the expense of Monday worship and Tuesday worship and Wednesday worship and Thursday worship. And I'm not talking about more and more gatherings where we come here. What we've done is we have taught our people that worship only happens in a building just like this and nowhere else. And that is a detriment to God's people, and it is not in line with God's Word at all. As a matter of fact, our gathering here on Sunday should be an overflow of the worship you've been doing all week already. That, that where you've been already in worshiping God, getting to into His Word, talking with Him, walking with Him, driving down your car, driving down the road in your car, and you see a beautiful sunset or a sunrise, and in that moment you just pause and say, thank you God for this new day that you've given me. An ongoing conversation that is happening between you and God that nobody else even knows about. That's what the psalmist is describing. A person's heart that is in tune with God, 
It is walking with God. Motivated for love, motivated by love for God, finds worship, finds opportunities to worship in the Monday and the Tuesday and the Wednesday and the office and the home and everywhere in between. Does that describe, does that describe your life of worship? If you've been born again, you have an even deeper, deeper connection to, to God through Christ who reconciled you back to a holy God. And as such, you've been forgiven, you've been set free. Unlike what the psalmist is talking about in his setting, our setting is, is that we've been redeemed through the blood of Jesus. All that the Old Testament was pointing to has already occurred. Jesus the Messiah has died. He has resurrected. and He's given you brand new life. And as such, we have more than enough to praise Him for and thank Him for every single moment, every single day of our life. What is it that distracts us? What is it that, that gets our attention off of worship until we come here or watch online on Sunday mornings? What is it during the week that, that has got our attention to such a degree that worship only occurs in one isolated place per week? Well, the fact is that something does have your attention. Now notice what the psalmist does next. This is very interesting. Verse 3. He says, Put not your trust in princes and a son of man whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day his plans perish. Now what's unusual about this is often when we've, and we've seen this already in the psalms, that when the psalmist gives praise and adoration to God, the very next thing that he does in the psalm is he says, the God of creation, the God who, who spoke the universe into being. He, he usually says something about God's creative power as a, as a right response in worship. But notice where the psalmist goes. He says, don't put your trust in princes. Why do you think the psalmist put that in that particular context in that psalm? Because I think the psalmist knows, just like I know, and just like you know, that there are all kinds of things, people, and power who are vying for your attention. And if, it's not, if we're not very careful, one of the distractions that keeps us from worshiping throughout the week is the worship of lesser things. And I think the psalmist is calling something out in his particular context to say these princes and these kings, these ones with power, these ones with titles, the ones who, who have a lot to say and are trying to, to guide us and give us instructions, be very, very careful. Be very careful who you give your ultimate attention and worship to. Because the Son of Man in whom there is no salvation, when his breath departs, he will return to the earth and his plans will perish with him. In other words, Wherever you're putting your trust, wherever you're putting your focus, wherever you're giving worship to, is that thing going to perish? It doesn't matter if it's a human being or money or lust or whatever. Whatever you're putting your trust in, whatever you're putting your hope in, is it going to end like everything else? And if so, then it's less than the God of this universe. I think it's interesting that right here, the psalmist brings our attention to the fact that we have all been designed to worship. The problem is, is we're giving worship to lesser things. We're putting our trust in things that can't be trusted. We're, we're putting our hope in things that can't possibly give us hope. This whole last political cycle, I think there's a whole lot of folks who are putting their hope in a candidate that can't possibly bring about the hope that your heart desires. My concern is, is that people who've put their faith in Jesus have put in their hope, ultimate hope, 
and a political candidate and a political entity, and, and there is where they're putting their hope. And, and there is why they're only worshiping maybe one day a week at best. I think this psalmist wants us to pay attention, very close attention, to where we spend our time, where we keep our focus. Who are we putting hope in that's going to deliver us from whatever situation we're, we find ourselves in? No matter what they promise, no matter what they guarantee, they ultimately cannot deliver. You know why? Because every one of those human beings or one of, every one of those systems that you're putting trust in could end tomorrow. Whatever human being you're putting your trust in that's going to deliver you out of whatever situation you're in, that person could die tomorrow. They have no control over your future. They have no control over their own. He says that right here. On that very day, his plans will perish. But notice what he says next, verse 5. Blessed or happy are those whose help is in the God of Jacob, those who hope in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. This is why God is trustworthy. He finally gets to it, right? Verses 5 and 6 should have been right under verses 1 and 2. But the psalmist wants us to understand that, that we've been made to worship, and far too often we place our trust somewhere other than the God of Jacob. But notice what else the psalmist says. Not only is God trustworthy, and the reason he's trustworthy is because he's made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed. In verse 7, the psalmist turns his attention towards the broken, towards those who are hurting, towards those who, who need help and need it desperately. So notice in verse 7, he, he who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, the Lord sets the prisoner free, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind, the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down, the Lord loves the righteous, the Lord watches over the sojourners or travelers or, or, or international guests who are traveling through. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. Did you know that the Lord does all of that? Now, how does the Lord do that? How, how is it that the Lord sets prisoners free? How is it that the Lord gives food to the hungry? How is it that the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down? Well, in the psalmist context, it was to be the nation of Israel. Not only was the nation of Israel to have a promised land with a, a, a city where there would be a temple built where they would go and worship God, but but the Israelite nation was to be a nation unlike any other nation on earth, called and set apart by God, going all the way back to Abraham. And the covenant that God made with Abraham was to be a blessing to the nations, that, that the nation of Israel was to be outward focused, that even the law that God provided for them was to make sure that they took care of the fatherless, that they, that they were to take care of the orphan, that they were to take care of the widow, that they were to take care of those in need. And when sojourners, when people would pass through their land, that they would love them, that they would take them in and feed them. No one else was doing that. As a matter of fact, the pagan nations around Israel who were worshiping all kinds of false gods, they were completely inward focused. They didn't care for the widow. They didn't care for the orphan. Uh, they, they didn't take care of the, of the folks in their society that were struggling with disease or sickness. They, they ignored them. As a matter of fact, they would use them and abuse them. They would, they would facilitate all kinds of injustice upon those people because they were weak. 
And these nations that had sun god like the Egyptians, they believed in power at all cost. And then God calls a nation of people from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And their God demands of them that they love the stranger, that they help the outcast, that they love the poor, that they feed those, that, that even when they harvest their fields, they were to leave the corners of the fields untouched so that those who were traveling through, <clears throat> who, were, who were poor or traveling, would have food to eat. You look all through God's law and you find over and over again God's care and God's love for the outcast. But you know what happened with Israel, right? Israel began to focus on the gods of the nations around them. And, and the more they focused on Baal and Asherah, the more they turned inward. As a matter of fact, when the minor prophets, well, both the major and minor prophets would speak to the people, they would tell the nation of Israel that they had grow cold and indifferent, not only towards God, but, but towards those in their community who are poor. Isaiah, even Malachi that was just talked about, there are portions of their prophecies that condemns Israel for the way they were treating the widow, the fatherless, the blind, and the poor. Now, why do you think that Israel all of a sudden became so cold and indifferent towards those in need around them? It's because their heart became cold towards God. Their vertical worship of God, they weren't loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength that they were told to do in Deuteronomy. And then out of that flows a love for people who are in need. As a matter of fact, you can't love the fatherless. You can't love the widow. You can't love people who are in need unless your love is first directed at God and changed, your heart changed by that kind of love. Wherever we look at Israel turning their backs on the outcast, we find Israel that had turned their back on God first. What about Jesus and his ministry with the disciples? Turn over to Luke 4. I want you to see Luke 4. This is Jesus in one of his first public speaking opportunities where he's in the synagogue and he's in Nazareth, his hometown. And Jesus goes into the synagogue, and, and he's going to teach. And everybody has, has already heard of the miracles that he's been doing. And there was an expectation that when he came to Nazareth, that Jesus was going to perform the same level of miracles in his hometown. I mean, think about it. This is his hometown crowd. Certainly, he's going to perform miracles here. So Jesus comes into Nazareth at verse 16, Luke chapter 4. He goes into the synagogue. And he's on the Sabbath day, and he's going to ask for one of the scrolls from Isaiah chapter 61. And Jesus is going to unroll that scroll in this synagogue, and he's going to begin to teach out of Isaiah 61. Look at verse 18. This is right out of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now that phrase, that phrase that Isaiah, that Jesus is using out of Isaiah, all of that was meant for Israel. Israel was to do exactly that, that they were to proclaim good news, that they were to set the captives, the captives free in liberty. They were to help the blind recover their sight. In other words, Israel was to be God's representative on earth to point people to a holy God. But they failed. Jesus comes, born in Bethlehem, 
raised in Nazareth, begins his public ministry. He's baptized by John the Baptist. He goes off into the wilderness and is tempted. He's tempted out there for 40 days. He comes out of that temptation, goes to Nazareth, goes into the synagogue, and you know what he does when he gets there? He proclaims to the Israelite people that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. And after he had rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, he sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and this is what he began to say. This scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing today. In other words, Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of, of all that Isaiah said all those many years ago. Although Israel has failed, God didn't give up. That God's ultimate plan was Jesus to be born and that Jesus would be the culmination of all of this work, God's work, in a world that is broken and different, cold and hurting. That Jesus, his ministry, is going to restore and accomplish what God had been wanting to accomplish all along. That, that all that Israel did and all that Israel failed has been leading to and even brings about Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem, who's going to do exactly what God has called him to do. What about the disciples? Did the disciples get it? Well, if you remember John 4, Jesus goes down to Samaria. The Samaritans were hated people. And the disciples were really uneasy about Jesus going down to Samaria because the disciples were accustomed to traveling around Samaria, not to it. They didn't even want to be in Samaria because you would be unclean if you traveled through that area. Jesus has his eyes set on Samaria. He goes there, and not only that, he meets a woman at the well. And not only that, this woman has been living in all kinds of, of lust and sin for years. Jesus has an appointment with her, and he goes directly to her. The disciples struggle with that. The disciples struggle with the idea of calling Matthew a tax collector to be a disciple. The, the disciples struggled with the idea that Jesus was going to be hanging out with the outcast, the broken, and the poor. You remember the woman with the issue of blood that creeps through the crowd, pushes through the crowd, and tries to test Jesus? You know what the disciples were doing? They were trying to keep her away. They were trying to push her back. And she reaches through the legs of people, touches the hem of Jesus' garment, and Jesus stops dead in his tracks and says, there's somebody here who's touched me. And the disciples, yeah, Jesus, a whole bunch of people touch you. There's a whole crowd here. No, 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 no. Somebody has touched me with faith. And he turns around and it was this woman who had been to every doctor in town and could not be healed. And Jesus made her whole. The disciples were the ones that weren't getting it. That, that Jesus came for folks just like that woman with the issue of blood. That Jesus came for the Samaritan. That Jesus came for the tax collector. That Jesus even came that a Pharisee may hear the truth by the name of Nicodemus and be born again. The disciples didn't get it. Because it was so unusual and so out of touch and so different than the Pharisees and the organized religion of that day. But yet, that's exactly what God had placed him here to do and to provide the salvation that all of us needed. Jesus says that he's come to fulfill what Isaiah said hundreds of years earlier. Go back to Psalm 146. Well, what about the New Testament church? Those same disciples, save Judas, would then be the leaders of that New Testament church. What do we find them doing? Well, they finally got it. They finally got it. The Holy Spirit fills them in the upper room. They go out. They proclaim the gospel. 
And there's a guy laying by the gate called Beautiful. And Peter and John stop and say, Silver and gold have we none, but what we have we give to you in the name of Jesus. Rise up and walk. In Acts 2, we see that the New Testament church, after these 3,000 people came to faith in Christ, that they were giving sacrificially to meet the needs of those who were poor, the fatherless, the widow. You remember in Acts 6, there's a controversy about making sure the widows get taken care of, and, and six are appointed who are full of the Holy Spirit to make sure that ministry gets done. We find Barnabas giving money, selling his own property, and giving it to the church to make sure those who were in need we're taken care of. You see, in the early parts of the New Testament church and all through the book of Acts, we see the ministry of God. So if we go back to where we started, the turtle who says, I'm concerned that God, who is altogether loving and altogether powerful, why is it God isn't doing something? And the second turtle says, well, I'm afraid he's going to ask me the same thing. Guess what God's method is to help the helpless, to help the poor, to help the orphan, to help the widow? Well, just look to your left and right. And you'll see it. We, we are the ones who are called to be the ones who sets the prisoners free, who executes justice for the oppressed, who opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. You see, we, we are the answer to all of those problems. Those who've been born again, those who've been given the Holy Spirit, those who know who God is and know the power that He has. God is working through you to bring about the changes that are needing in the world. It's a lot easier for us to just point at God and say, God, it's your responsibility. But you've got to understand that one day you're going to stand before His Son and His Son is going to say, no, it was your responsibility. No excuses. No other things are going to come between you and him in that moment. He's going to ask, what did you do with what I gave you? When we look at the psalmist, he closes out in verse 10. He says, the Lord will reign forever. The Lord will reign forever. Where are you putting your trust? Are you putting it in temporary things? I think the psalmist closes this out with that phrase to again drive our attention to the reality that we may be putting our trust somewhere it ought not be put. In other words, we're misplacing our trust. We're misplacing our worship. The only way, the only way that we can execute justice, the only way that we can give food to the hungry, the only way that we can set the prisoners free, the only way we can open the eyes of the blind, the only way that we can watch over the sojourner and uphold the widow and the fatherless is if we first Worship the God of creation. You don't have enough strength. You don't have enough resources. You don't have enough power. And may I say, we don't have, we don't have enough love to love the broken. The only place we can tap into that resource of love is in that worship of God. And that worship must occur more than once a week. It must. There was a Christian Canadian sculptor. Uh, he's been sculpting these statues, making them out of bronze. And it's a homeless man, and he usually puts them on a bench asleep. So all over the world, you, you can find these statues. I don't know how many he's placed at this point, but there's lots of them. And basically, it's a statue of, of a man who's laying on a park bench, and he's got a, a blanket or a sheet pulled up all over completely. You can't see his face at all. 
And he, he's just laying there. And if you, if you just look at it in glance and you think it's a real person, it looks real. And he's placed these statues all over the world. And there's one thing that's very interesting about the statue, though. You, you can see that the sheet that's covering uh, this human being is very wrinkled. You can see it. It's, his hands are coming out from under the sheet, holding it like this, but you can't see his face at all. All you can see is his feet are exposed because the sheet is too short to cover his feet. And there's something very interesting about this man's feet. When you look closely at his feet, you can tell that on the top of both feet is a huge, gaping wound. You see, this Christian sculptor put Jesus under that blanket. And the only way you can tell is his feet sticking out the end. And he's put these statues in front of large churches. He put them in front of large businesses solely for the point of pointing out Matthew chapter 25. You remember what Matthew 25 says. This is Jesus teaching. He says, when you've done it unto the least of these, my brother, when you've done it unto the orphan, when you've done it unto the widow, when you've served them with love, it's just like you've done it unto me. He's put these sculptures all over the world, even in front of large, large uh, cathedrals to remind the folks who are going and coming out of that building that we as God's people have been called to run towards the brokenhearted and that that flows out of worship to God alone. So just a few things. First thing I want you to understand is that a lack of service, a lack of love for the people described in Psalm 146, for the people that Jesus describes in Luke 4, a lack of love may indicate a lack of worship. You see, every time Israel became selfish, every time the disciples became selfish, every time that we find selfish inward focus, we find a lack of worshiping God every single time. So if there's a lack of love and there's a lack of service for those people, Whoever those people are in your mind, I don't know who they are, but you fill in the blank. There's probably some group of people in your mind that you've come up with that don't deserve love. If that is in your heart, then I would point you to the reality that more than likely you're not worshiping God. Consistently, as long as you live and as long as you have being. Secondly, worship only one day a week means something else has your attention. Now, I don't think we can get away from this. I think if, if Sunday morning is the only time you think about God, if Sunday morning is the only time you think about prayer, if Sunday morning is the only time you think about worship, then something else, six days of the week, has your attention. Now, I don't know what that is. I know there's all kinds of things clamoring for my attention. I, I've even got distracted with the ministry of the church. That I got, I've gotten so distracted with doing the ministry of the church that I have failed to worship. And I guarantee you this because I've been down this road. When I fail to worship God, my love for other people will grow cold and it'll show up there pretty quickly. If worship is only a one day a week thing, then something else has your intention and you might want to take inventory there. For, for folks who are lost, who've never put their faith in Jesus, I think for you in particular, where you're putting your trust is something you need to identify and identify quickly. Because wherever you're putting your trust, whatever you are hoping for, or whatever you're putting, placing hope, 
look at that thing, whatever it is, and let me ask you a question. Is that thing going to last for eternity? Is that thing able to rescue you? Is that thing or that person able to pull you out? And I think you know the answer. The answer is no. What's amazing is, is even with Israel, is they were able to consistently go through the act of worship and never really worship at all. I think that's where eventually this leads, is that if we can put on a facade, if we can just show up on Sunday, if we can just think that worship only occurs here or that we're not even thinking about God or thinking about Christ or thinking about anything else during the week, that something else has our attention. And if we do it long enough, we can come in here and we can raise our hands and we can say amen while at the same time, Monday through Saturday, have no desire for God at all. Can I just offer to you that that is a dangerous, dangerous place to live? Finally, we're going to be evaluated one day for everyone who's been born again. You're going to have to stand before Jesus. And Jesus is going to be intently concerned about your motivation. Was your motivation for serving and loving because of the love you have for God? That the love that you have for your Creator, the love that you have for Christ, spills out of your life into love for others, and you're simply motivated to love people because God loves you? Or is it because you're motivated by personal notoriety? You want people to see you and to see how great you are and see how righteous you are and see how holy you are. Are you, are you doing things simply to be seen? The Pharisees would do this quite a bit, and Jesus called them out on it several times. He says, he told them one time, he said that, he said, you guys are like a bunch of whitewashed tombs. You make a, the grave look really good. You make the outward man look really good, but on the inside you're full of death. Are you, are you serving because you've been guilted into it? In other words, you, you, the, the idea runs through your head, well, I've got to do this because this is what's expected of me, so I've got to do it. And you're just simply doing it because you've been guilted into it. That's not the right motivation to serve and to love because the person you're trying to serve and the person you're trying to love is going to know that your motivation is not actually love, it's guilt. What about obligation? Closely connected to guilt. You just simply feel obligated. You feel like you've got to check the box. The, the, the reason you're loving this person or serving in this particular ministry is because you just want to check the box because you feel like that maybe gets you in good with God or somehow tilts things into your favor a little bit. That which flows out of sincere worship for God. If your motivation is because you love God, you love Jesus, <clears throat> then that which flows out of that is going to be the most enjoyable, it's going to be the most satisfying, and it's going to have the most impact. Where you're serving out of obligation or serving out of guilt, there's a whole lot of other things I could put in the list. You're, you're serving to be seen. That has very little impact. You'll find very little joy from it, and it certainly won't be satisfying. But when you begin to serve out of the love that you have for God and the love that He has for you, then you begin to have impact. Then you begin to see what God is doing all around you. Then you begin to love what you're doing and the people you're serving. If there is cold indifference towards the people around you that are described in Psalm 146, they're all around us. Robinson County is not short on people in need. But if, you're cold, if your heart is growing cold towards those people, whoever those people are, the first place you've got to look is your worship. 
And if worship has only become a one-day event for you, then I want you to know that the God who loves you, the God who saved you, the God who maybe the God who wants to save you, you have his attention. And he wants to spend time with you. He, he's made everything possible for you to spend time with him because he wants you to be the answer to that question. How in the world are all these hurting people? How are they ever going to be touched? How are they ever going to change? How is their life ever going to get better? You're the answer to that question. As a Christ follower, you've been given all that you need to impact the ones that are broken and left out, but it begins with your worship of him first. Father in heaven, as we continue to worship you this morning, uh, we, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness. Father, I'm thankful for the psalmist that in a poetic way gets our attention, gets our attention in a way that, that focuses us on what is really important. The psalmist says that there's nothing greater than to spend his entire life worshiping you, that every breath, every day, every moment spent in worship and devotion to you. Father, that all of our service, all of our love, everything flows from that place. Father, for the believer, for the Christ follower in this room, we have experienced your grace, and we are called to dispense that grace to those around us. As we move into this Christmas season, as we just celebrated being thankful for what you've given us, may that materialize and work and service towards those such as the fatherless, such as the widow, such as the poor, such as those who have nothing when we've been given everything. But Father, it has to flow out of our love and devotion to you. May we be motivated by love. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for these people. Use us during this Christmas season in new ways that brings honor and glory to you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.